description just hope that you enjoyed this rare and infamous moment that combines a first-rate disaster with genuine historical significance. But now it's time to take a deep breath and get those cameras out as we prepare to temporally reset you to one of the most fantastic catastrophes in history. Are you ready? everyone and welcome to the time shifters podcast this is christopher i'm here as always with tom tom how are you i am fantastic how are you doing i'm doing pretty well it has been a uh, crazy couple of weeks work has been it, work has been either dead or it's been i can't it's been too much going on to even think so getting home and uh turning on the tv every now and again i have been rotting my brain a little bit (laughs) (laughs) Uh, see i've taken advantage of uh spring has uh, more or less sprung and we're actually easing our way in not jumping straight to 90 degree weather so (laughs) no no unfortunately we haven't had like the great weather here yet we've keep getting these uh these teases yeah but those teases are usually in the middle of the week and by the time the weekend comes around, oh, here's some 40 degrees and rain. Yeah. I spent an afternoon at a track meet for my son in 50-degree uh, gusts of wind and very cold rain on occasion. So that was a good time. Oh, fun. But then uh, the very next day, it was absolutely gorgeous. So, And I actually got a chance to go out, and we had to – I was uh, took uh, senior pictures for a friend of his – Oh, yes. And so we got to go around town and do some uh, picture taking. And I tell you what, it's a lot of fun actually taking pictures of a person. <laughs> <laughs> it's something I rarely get a chance to do. Very true. Yeah, so it was a lot of fun. I have had a chance to watch a little bit of television and some movies. Uh, there's a film I watched. It came up at Amazon Prime. It's one of those things where it's... It's been in my you might like list for a while, yeah. but I haven't really given it all that much attention. This time I actually clicked on it and just read the synopsis and went, okay, I'm going to go ahead and check out The 10th Victim from 1965. Okay. Uh, it's an Italian film, pseudo science fiction sort of thing. Uh, it takes place sometime in the 21st century after a third world war to try to uh, eliminate these giant armed conflicts between nations or whatever, uh, individuals participate in a human versus human game called the big hunt. People sign up and then you are selected to be either the hunted or the hunter. I think they actually call the hunter or the victim. And the goal is to kill the other before they kill you. And the victim doesn't know who their hunter is. So they have to actually kind of figure it out. And in this film, a a veteran uh, huntress who is on the cusp of her 10th victim, if she gets this 10th victim or this 10th kill, I think she gets like, uh, she gets to retire from the game and gets like $10 million or something like that. Well, she agrees to uh, kill this 10th victim, who's also a famous participant in the game for a major TV sponsor. Being that uh, her victim is a, a handsome man and she's a beautiful woman, romantic entanglements kind of uh, get in the way. <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> but what I loved about this film, it was the fact that it was so 1960s, over-the-top, stylistic. I mean, this was, you, you know the, the show The Prisoner that I love. Yes. And I love it because it's so surreal and odd. This is that on steroids. Wow. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's like, um, imagine like the some of the opening scenes of like Austin Powers, but taken seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually, uh, a little bit of Mike Myers lifted a lot of stuff from this film, incorporated it into his Austin Powers film. Uh, down to like the, uh, the silver bikini with the, the fembots who had the... Uh, the guns in their brassiers. Oh, wow. <laughs> the bra guns. Yeah. That came from this film. Oh, my God. Okay, now I got to kind of watch this. 
Well, if, and if nothing else, it's Ursula Andress at her absolute prime. She is so beautiful. And she looks fantastic at every moment in this film. But yeah, I had I had a great time with it. It was when he's, I'm just watching it and it's washing over me and I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm watching, but I absolutely <laughs> loved it. <laughs> it was great. I really enjoyed it. That's cool. That's really neat. On a very opposite side of the spectrum, mm-hmm. I decided to dig out my uh, DVD set of In Search Of. Oh, wow. Very cool. Yes, from uh, ran from 76 to 82, hosted by Leonard Nimoy, for those of us who grew up at the time. I enjoy these things so much. So much of this thing is what kind of helped shape me as a young child and and, grown, and growing into adults, sort of the whole mysteries of the unknown kind of ideas and these potential theories about, and obviously this one kind of goes for a lot of the more fantastical theories of things that have, you know, ancient astronauts or uh, UFOs or Bigfoot and all that stuff, but... I've said it before. I think I've said it before on the show. What it really impresses me is that, I mean, the show starts saying that the producers are just putting forth one possible explanation for the mysteries that they're uh, investigating. And it's not the only uh, uh, explanation. And I'm really impressed that throughout the show, I mean, that's that's how they carry it. This they're not saying this is real. This right. is what happened. I mean, I see stuff on History Channel and Discovery and whatever now that are far less open with their opinions about right. you know. You watch them ancient aliens shows or whatever on on. Oh yeah, no, they sell that like that's gold, like that's fact. Yeah, exactly. They 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 play all that stuff. You see stuff about investigating Loch Ness or or Bigfoot and. You get these people on there like, no, this this is this is the truth, and this is what's happening. And this in search of didn't do that. They just put forth a one opinion or maybe one or two opinions about an explanation of some occurrence that happened, you know, in in this time or in history, and they just kind of leave it up to you. You know, you take it with however you want. Is it complete bunk? Well, if that's what you believe, fine. If there's a is there a kernel of truth to it? Maybe we'll see. You know, and. It's just really impressive. I know, no, I, I remember that show so fondly, but I don't have access to it uh, on a box set. So. It's really cool. It's so nice to just kind of plug them in. And only a half an hour, you can burn through, you know, two or three of them in, a, in an evening without any issues. And it's just, it's just fun, kind of mindless entertainment. Although it, it I have discovered it, it can uh, kind of invade your dreams. <laughs> I've had some pretty bizarre, at least one night or two of uh, some bizarre dreams that had a few things to do where I feel like maybe Leonard Nimoy needs to be hosting an investigation. Into your brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, well, you know what? It, I, I remember it having that kind of quality. I remember looking forward to it every week when it would come out. I remember the opening sequence was always kind of spellbounding uh, with the music and all that even though it just kind of, in hindsight, it's probably pretty cheesy music. But <laughs> but I, I just remember having that quality, like, I, I might watch this and wind up scared. Because mm-hmm. and, and, it was always so kind of effective in that way. Well, they do such a nice job. I mean, it is, it is early reality TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get... When they can, I, I think they, for the most part, get the actual participants to uh, reenact their experiences. And the fact that it's 1970, so everything's on film and it, it has that, um, or I suppose some, some form of uh, 70s videotape, but it has that that feel. Yeah, it's just, it it's a lot of fun. No doubt. No, that'd be a fun one to rewatch. Surprised it's not streaming somewhere. I was kind of uh, surprised that it's not out there anywhere either. If you think that was the kind of thing that would end up on like Tubi or something like that. Yeah, I feel like between like Freebie, Tubi, Pluto, at some point somewhere, they're literally going to have a channel for any show that was ever popular, ever. <laughs> right. 
uh, the only other thing that I've done that was kind of fun is I started playing around with one of these uh, AI chatbots. Oh, yeah. No, I remember seeing you post <laughs> some of that. It's actually having a lot of fun just um, asking questions and, 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 and stuff like that. I was very disappointed <laughs> when asked about the podcast I couldn't convince it that it existed. <laughs> now I plugged in like my other por- uh, podcast, Orphan Entertainment. Mm-hmm. It had a great description of that. I mean, to the actually, it had a better description than than the show is, and I'm I think the show's great, but this <laughs> description was even better. Although it did marry my co-host Lydia and I off. I'm not sure. You know, suddenly we're a husband and wife team. I, I was talking with someone about that today. <laughs> And I, I couldn't help but be amused that uh, somehow, it, I mean, it's not shocking that it's flawed in some way, but it, it means it's it, it's bound by biases as well. <laughs> exactly. I was just thinking the same thing. It's like, well, that's rather sexist or whatever, just to, that it just assumes that, it, oh, if it's a guy and a girl on a podcast, they must be married. Right. Can't possibly be friends or anything. <laughs> Well, right, and if it had managed to find us, it would assume uh, completely the opposite in any way. <laughs> like, in which case, what's wrong with us being married? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, I kept asking if, uh, you know, and I tried it a couple different ways. The closest I got is it started coming up with some time shifters, but it was like, it was the wrong hosts. And it was completely talking about something entirely different, just about time travel or something. I'm like, well, do you know about time shifters with the hosts, Christopher and Tom? Oh, yeah, I know about that. It, it's the wrong Christopher and Tom. They're like, what? You making stuff up now or what? <laughs> uh, the answer is yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. But uh, it was had a good time, and I got a big kick because I, I shared it with a few other people because I plugged in other podcast names. And I was, again, I was just getting more and more annoyed because every podcast I would plug in, it knew and gave a description of other except ours. But a lot of them would come up with an, oh, then one of the best segments and it would name some segment. And then I'd ask the uh, actual host, I'm like, um, was this ever a thing? And they're like, no. <laughs> I have no idea what that is. It, it, it's interesting that at the time of this recording, uh, today is the day where uh, there has been at least some sort of like letter uh, to recommend to like Microsoft and those that are building these AIs to pause the work that they're doing to step back and anal- do some analysis around they're the legitimacy of doing these and noting the danger, the fact that you can go into a chat GPT, aside from the fact that the people are worried about plagiarism across the board, or not even necessarily plagiarism, just the notion of cheating. Uh, I'm going to have some, but I'm going to have this AI write shit for me. <laughs> but there's also the fact that the AIs, in, in lieu of not being able to find information will then make it up. I, I, I'm not sure where it got some information. It, it told me that it was only up to date until like 2021. So anything after 2021, it, it, it doesn't know anything about. Okay. And it doesn't have any actual live web, uh, you know, browser kind of functionality or anything. Uh, so yeah, it's very weird that it would, come up with these odd segments for shows that these shows never did that segment or don't talk about that subject. And yeah, why, why make that up or where are you gleaning that from? Yeah. I don't know where it got any of the information from, from a lot of them, but Mm -hmm. I, I guess it scours, um, reviews or show synopsis kind of stuff. Yeah. But don't know, but it was still, I don't know. It was a it was a fun it's a it's a fun toy to play with, mm-hmm. I guess. And if you treat it as such, then it, it will be probably fine. But I, I mean, working at a university, I know there it is a big concern using it for bigger projects. And I've watched people literally write code with it, and mm. 
there's something it, it's preliminary but there's something a little off-putting about the notion uh, of a piece of code writing other pieces of code <laughs> oh, yeah so. yeah there's I, I feel like there was a film yes <laughs> Or, or a dozen about that. Yeah, I feel like people have covered this kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I, and then I start thinking about, okay, you've got this stuff coming, and then if anyone's watched anything with the Boston Dynamics robots, the... the, mm. the oh, yeah, yeah. The, the ones where uh, you can actually fight with them, and they don't fall down, and they react, and all that, and... They'll go even as far as there's armed robots, and now all mm -hmm. I need is for ChatGPT to somehow get in the head of one of these things, and uh, yeah, we're gone. See ya. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, before we get to uh, the synopsis of this week's film, which uh, a ChatGPT helped me write... <laughs> Uh, what have you been up to? I, I, I've been pretty much keeping up with the Star Wars, Star Trek stuff for the most part. So up on my Mandalorian, up on... Um, honestly, uh, in the Star Wars world, I think their animated stuff still stays... is better than their live action these days. So their series, The Bad Batch, um, is actually really good um, and does some very effective uh, storytelling around this kind of stuff that happens during those in-between times for the films. So they're doing some really wonderful stuff with uh, what happened to the clones. Um, and the stories that they're telling in that, in that territory are amazing. So those are fun. But the one that I really wanted to talk about, because I am deathly afraid of heights. Deathly mm -hmm. afraid. I struggle anywhere... Um, near the edge of something and I will back away even if oh, I'm okay. completely safe so but that said I also tempt myself with those things from time to time and there's a film that's out right now called Fall oh that's about the uh, two uh, two girls on top of the radio tower yeah television tower 2,000 feet yeah. into the air <laughs> I I saw a clip from that or saw the trailer or something like that and that that was that was good for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh yeah, if you have a trouble with heights um and really, I mean seriously, you have trouble with heights, this is not the movie for you. I have trouble with heights, but I challenged myself with it. And I watched this film um I highly recommend it. For a film that doesn't involve a whole lot of... There's not a whole lot of anything in it. I, I've been trying to look it up. I thought this is based on a true story. Um, I can't seem to track down whether or not that's real. Um, but either way, one of the particular tidbits that I enjoyed is... Okay, this is about two girls climbing a 2,000-foot tower... It's hard to conceive how tall that is, but it's really damn tall. <laughs> yeah, I'm, honestly, my vertigo starts uh, taking over just by you describing someone climbing a 2,000-foot tower. <laughs> well, and, cli and climbing, like, the movie starts off by, by telling the story of uh, an earlier story about a trauma that happened that involved them climbing a mountain. Um. And you can wrap your head around climbing a mountain, why people do it, and all that. This is a spike in the ground <laughs> yeah. that's held with, with, with cable tethers and a small tripod frame that starts at the bottom um, and doesn't go that tall. Then it's all just this big pole, essentially. And the thing that I'm thoroughly impressed at while catching up on some of the details of this, there is very little green screen in this. The, the effects of filming these two girls up in the height, they weren't at 2,000 feet, but they were at 100. Oh, okay, that, that high? I they couldn't remember. They were that high. They built a replica of the top of the tower and had it be 100 feet in the air. 
So I'm certain it was surrounded by green airbags, but mm-hmm. but those those actresses were at that height in what is essentially a precarious situation. A hundred feet's not nothing to fall off of either. So, but yeah, um, there are moments in the film you're just like, oh my god, you 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 really kind of wonder for those those adrenaline junkies that get out there and they do those things where they climb to the top of buildings or they go mm-hmm. hang by a single hand off the edge of something. Yeah, we need to stop talking about this. Actually, <laughs> sorry, but this pulls off every bit of that uh, freaks you the hell out and then still manages to tell a really good story. Um, so I highly recommend watching it. Just go in knowing if you don't like this stuff, you aren't going to like this film. Yeah. I, I Maybe I'll listen to it someday. <laughs> <laughs> He'll take in the podcast version. <laughs> yeah. No visuals. Yeah. I don't know if I've mentioned it on the show or not. It's something that's happened to me just as I've gotten older. When I was younger, I was always at the top of the tree. I was climbing on the roof. You know, it nothing, the heights didn't bother me whatsoever. And the last, say, 20 years or so, I, I don't know what happened, but suddenly just you know trying to get to the top of the ladder to try to clean a gutter or or hang a light or something like that i just started getting really uneasy and then as i've gotten older that's just more and more and if i can walk up to something and there's a a, like a railing between me and whatever i'm fine i can hold on that railing i can look over i don't have an issue it's that sheer drop thing and there's nothing between you know me and it yep that i I get really kind of just, I don't know how to describe it. I just no, it, uncomfortable it's a panic attack. You're, you're, yeah. you're, everything about your body says, nope, 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 nope. No, I, I'm totally with you. I used to climb the outside of buildings when I was in what my first, that I literally did that. Uh, I, uh, nightly I would climb the outside of my dorm room. Oh, uh, ju- just to scale up to my floor. Because it was an exposed uh, um, old um, motel, so <laughs> they had great handholds, and I could <laughs> I could do that. Right. Um, I even bungee jumped that year, um, and I re- I remember being not happy about heights, but I wanted to challenge myself. But the older I get, the harder it gets. <laughs> Yeah, it's gotten to the point now where, yeah, I watch things on television, you know, or in a film, and there's, like, the the, the helicopter or the view where they go to the edge of the building, and then they, you know, to the street. I, I kind of have to, like, put my hand on a cushion or something, you know, just to, like, steady myself. It, I feel it. It gets really uncomfortable for me. No, uh, watching this film where they're climbing the—I mean— the climb is the easy part. They are using ladders. Uh, there's a ladder that goes all the way up to the top of this thing. Climbing is not the problem, but I can put myself in that scenario where I am too high up on a ladder and my muscles would lock in place trying mm. to hold on for dear life, even if I'm okay. Um, right. And there's that there's that surge in your head that goes... I'm going to fall, and it's myself that's going to make me fall. Like, I'm just going to go, I can't do this, and I'm just going to let go. And I I can, watching this movie that whole time, I'm like, I'm I'm just going to fall. This is why this is called (laughs) fall. You're just going to fall. Right. So, I challenge you to watch it sometime. Maybe, maybe. Anything else you wanted to talk about? No, I think I think that left me traumatized well enough. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, let's, let's put our feet firmly back on the ground yep. and uh, move on. We'll take a break and uh, collect ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> we'll listen to a promo for another podcast. And then when we get back, we will take a look at 2003's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen.
I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hemorama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely and of Your Own Will. Part of the multi award nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film Vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across then and now reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. And unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. are legendary. Their origins are unknown. Their methods are extreme. But when our future's at stake, they'll be the world's last hope. And the game is on. LXG, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is a 2003 action-adventure film directed by Stephen Norrington. It is loosely based on the comic book series of the same name by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. Set in the late 19th century, the film follows the formation of a team of literary characters recruited by the British government to stop a villainous madman known as the Phantom. Uh, the team is led by Alan Quartermain, a legendary adventurer who is joined by the likes of Captain Nemo, Mina Harker, the Invisible Man Rodney Skinner, Dorian Gray, Tom Sawyer, and Dr. Jekyll slash Mr. Hyde. As the League travels across Europe, they encounter a variety of obstacles, from battles with the Phantom hench- Phantom's henchmen to conflicts within the team itself. Along the way, they also discover the Phantom's true identity and his sinister plans for the future. This film, when it came out in 2003, it came out at a really great time. So I think the early 2000s, I think between the comic book, this film, and a few other things that were going on at the time, really brought steampunk mm-hmm. to the front and center of uh, for a lot of people. Yeah. I would agree. And this film has a lot of that steampunk element. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, despite the fact that this film didn't do as great as they might have liked at the box office, I think it, it, it had a little bit of cultural significance because it kind of helped bring that whole steampunk uh, aesthetic to the uh, to more to more eyes, I guess. It, neat, it neatly dovetails. I mean, 2003, we just did a turn of the century then. And this movie is about the turn of the century at that time. And there's a little mysticism that goes with that. There's that that whole love of trying to bend that bring modern and old together, which is very much the steampunk way of things. Now, I've uh, embarrassingly never read the graphic novel. Have you looked at any of those? No, the, um, I, I was familiar with them. It was never anything that I ended up picking up. Mm, yeah, I'm definitely kind of interested in in, in reading them. I've uh, actually requested a copy from the library, but it, it didn't arrive uh, prior to recording, unfortunately. Uh, as I understand it, uh, Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill were really displeased with how much the film kind of departed from the actual source material. And they sort of um, kind of tried to distance themselves from the film as much as they could. 
Alan Moore has a habit of doing that, though. <laughs> That's true. Alan Moore produces great material for the comic book, but I think I think he forgets that he makes comic books. Mm. <laughs> so when somebody tries to turn it into a film and their adaptation is somehow slightly off from his story, he makes comic books. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like... Sometimes, you know, let go a little bit and maybe take yourself a little less seriously. Well, from what I've read, a few of the characters are different. Mina Harker, uh, who goes by her uh, maiden name in the books, which I'm, I'm blanking on at the moment, she's actually the one that actually assembles the team. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so actually changing that and making her just another recruit recruited by... M, you know, this mysterious M, mm-hmm. a male, I'll admit, does come off as a little bit of the welcome to the 2000s. It's sexist. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about some of this cast. This is a cast. This is this is an amazing cast, actually. Especially for the day. Yeah, for the day. A headline by Sean Connery. And this is actually the film, because of the poor uh, response is the film that he finally decided I'm done. I'm retiring from acting. He had been dialing back his appearances uh, prior to this. So it wasn't like he had like a, a busy career or anything and then sure. did this and went, Oh no, I quit. But he, he was starting to dial it down. He wasn't doing as many uh, films, but this is the film that finally said I'm done. And he left acting at least for the most part. No, I think this was his last film. No, he had others. Did he? Are you sure they weren't films that maybe he already had um, he'd already worked on, and maybe they were released later? That could be. Um, and then, yeah, uh, lo- looking at some of his filmography, uh, it was mostly TV series, voiceover stuff, that kind of thing. Sure, sure. Yeah. So yeah, so, that, that, not didn't give it up entirely. Just not lots of on screen. No, no major motion picture after this. Right. Uh, we've got an actor. I'm going to butcher this first name, and I'm terribly sorry. Nasir Udin Shaw is Captain Nemo. The most likable character in the film. Very likable. And a really nice, I like the fact that they went with a, uh, a representation of Captain Nemo that was more closely uh, connected to the book. Yes. You know, this was this was not... Uh, Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Captain yeah. Nemo. No, so I really appreciated that. Peter Wilson as Mina Harker. Uh, Tony Curran as Rodney Skinner, who was the uh, the Invisible Man, an actor that at the time I did not know anything about. He would go on and play in a couple different roles that um, I really liked him in, one of which was, of course, he played uh, uh, Vincent Van Gogh in uh, the Doctor Who episode, Vincent and the Doctor. Oh, nice. Which is a brilliant episode. Oh, and actually, now that you mention that, seeing it in his face, yeah, he he definitely looks like Van Gogh. <laughs> Just by himself. <laughs> he was in a, a short-lived series on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, what was it called? The one that took place in, like, a... St. Louis in the future. Defiance was the name of the series. It ran for two seasons, oh, okay. I think it was. Yeah, Defiance. I think I knew him in that first and started connecting his name to a character and then realized that that was the guy that played Vincent in Doctor Who and then going back and going, oh, wait a minute, that's the guy that's in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I had to go backwards a little bit through his filmography. Yeah, no, if you uh, spool through, yeah, he, he's in, in like tons of stuff. Yeah, no, I think he's a brilliant actor. I, he, I'd love to see him come to a convention near me. Oh, and, and then I, 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 just scrolling through, he he did five episodes of Voltron, Legendary Defender. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> you gotta hit me. Obviously, the sign that he's made it. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, moving on, we also have Stuart Townsend as Dorian Gray, and then a, a Shane West as Tom Sawyer, and then Jason Fleming does uh, Dr. Jekyll. Uh, yeah, a really great cast, and this is a film that, it depends on what circle you, you, you spin in, 
it's either really well loved or it's not. <laughs> I I don't know. I think I sit somewhere in the middle. I recognize a lot of flaws, but it's one of these films where if I were like flipping through channels and I see that it's on, I'm going to stop and watch. And, and, and I'm with you there. That that That's where my love, uh, it, it is mindless um, action adventure. Um, there is almost no scene where there isn't something happening anyway. So yes, you can just pop in anywhere and just kind of enjoy it for what it is. Uh, honestly, they didn't use him to as good of an effect as they could have, but yes, the scenes with the Invisible Man, um, especially with uh, now I blanked on his name again, uh, with to- Tony Curran in the role. Uh, when he's talking, I love some of the scenes. Uh, for as cheesy as some of the effects are, some of the effects with him as the Invisible Man are actually kind of rather good. Like, his first appearance showing up and he's slathering the white makeup across his face to just show them that he is actually there. He throws on his black coat. He smears that on. Depending on the angle, you're either looking through the makeup from the back of his head or in front. I thought all of that was really super cool. And when they finally get into a new scene where he's going to have to fight other people... And, and this is the part that always weirds me out with the Invisible Man as a concept is he has to go fight naked. Yep. <laughs> For him to be effective as the Invisible Man, he has to get undressed, which can't be un- can't be comfortable, uh, regardless of the fact nobody can see you. I'm just the concept of no shoes, no protection whatsoever. You just have to hang all out there literally, <laughs> and he's got to go fight. But the that first moment where they've gotten all together and they're about to have that big fight in the big library there. Um, and he ha- in order to jump into action, he is stripping off the coat and he's splashing water on the makeup on his face. And the effect that they did, the, the way that it looks when he's running away doing that is amazing. They did a great job with that. Unfortunately, they don't carry that through to everything else. I think... Strangely, I, I I think the effects look good throughout the entire film. That the Invisible Man is actually really impressive, although I think there are a few moments where it looks a little clunky when the hand is actually trying is, is smearing the makeup. Um, I think the makeup itself looks great, like you were saying, yeah. where you're like looking and you're seeing it from behind, so you're seeing through the back of his head to the front of his face. I think that all looks really good, but I I found it a little odd uh, with the hand rubbing the makeup on the face. I didn't feel like it. I don't know. It was like, it was just off uh, sometimes. Could be just uh, but, from all the other things going on. I don't know how they handled that. There was a lot in the, that scene at the time. Right. Uh, but no, I thought the, the effects throughout the entire film were pretty impressive, especially for 2003. I mean, this is still fairly early in, you know, in the CGI uh, history. Very true. Uh, the parts where... The thing that always stands out for me, you're not wrong. Uh, most of the effects are pretty good. Um, the thing that always falls apart for me is the one at the end when um, Hyde is fighting the all the Uber Hyde um, mm-hmm. that he encounters because the the Uber Hyde guy is too much. Um, and it starts coming off, uh, I, I, I don't know, claymation-y, uh, very, yeah, no. very funky. Uh, it, it pulls you out of it in that moment. And you're supposed to be celebrating that Hyde is behaving as a team player. And he's putting his life on the line to save everybody. And you're like, nobody's there. <laughs> Nothing is happening. <laughs> it's, it, that's the part that takes me out of it. No, I will agree. That does kind of have a, a video game quality, uh, certainly of the time. Everything that that creature and even Hyde it has a sort of that that odd sheen mm-hmm. to it that a lot of the uh, CGI creations of, of the time had. Yeah, and then since we're in the area of effects at the moment, 
The Nautilus and Venice. <laughs> How deep do they think we think Venice is? <laughs> yeah, that is actually a gripe I have with the film, is I think the Nautilus, they, they made it a bit too large. Yes, it, it, it's enormous. Uh, I mean, it's impressive looking when mm-hmm. we're doing open water sequences and, and all of that. But to suggest that we're effectively going to use this in the city of Venice, <laughs> first the fact that it, it <laughs> it's suggesting that this thing was submerged and not visible uh, at, at the height that Venice actually is, which is ridiculous. But then the fact this thing is so ginormous and so long, and it's just going to pull down a canal... Yeah, yeah, it's going to, like, wash everything away on on either side. Uh, it's going to wash everything away, and at least they did point out at one point it does knife part of the uh, uh, the buildings around, the, around it. But, yeah, this thing would have tore out half of Venice all by itself, assuming <laughs> yes. it could actually travel down any of that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. that, those are not that deep. <laughs> the Nautilus is a little, a little large and extravagant for... Uh, it, they they could have toned that down a little bit, little little bit. I mean, yeah, they were exceeding that. I get that they wanted as many good guy throwaway people as possible, but uh, this was too much. So that aside, uh, going back to the cast a little bit, mm-hmm. I, I I think it's a great cast. Sean Connery as Alan Quartermain is, I think, great casting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's brilliant, and it's it's kind of one of these things where um, I'm actually really sorry that he was so unhappy with the, you know, that this film got the response that it did. Cause I was like, Oh, you should have been really been proud of this role. Not embarrassed. Yeah. See, I, I can come at this from two ways. He did a great job. Um, but I mean, a lot of the lines were just a lot of the dialogue in here is pretty not great. So it's not like it was up to his level. Of delivery, I mean, he's capable of so much more than this asked of him. Yeah, well, yeah this maybe harkens a little bit back to like uh, his role in like the Highlander. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, this is a movie, especially the the way that it was put together, it would sit very comfortably in the eighties. <laughs> oh yeah, no, yes. I'm going to share a lot of things, and they're not going to make sense, but you're going to love them. <laughs> Yeah, because it's one of those things. He just has presence. He, yep, exactly. He could read the phone book to you, and you're like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so so I get I get where his head's at. Like, yeah, sure, he, he did a great job, and the movie's not not fun. It is a fun film. But this was not a challenge by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Well, maybe that's one of the reasons he took it, because he had actually turned down a lot of... Uh, he turned down a role in The Matrix. He told turned down a role in Lord of the Rings, all because he just he really didn't get the films. Mm. And even in this one, I don't think he really truly understood, but he decided to do it anyway. And I also read that he actually clashed with the director a lot in this, too. Uh, he was really, I think he was ready to retire and I think he was starting regretting the idea that of doing another film. <laughs> so he, he and the director clashed on, uh, on, on several occasions. And, and that's a fair point. Cause it actually matches up very well with the character. That, mm. I mean, oh, absolutely. this Alan Quartermain is just essentially done with the world. Um, he's watched most of the good parts of his life go out the door. He literally has another man posing as himself to just keep everybody away from him. Um, so the character is very much done. So the fact that Sean Connery was pretty much done, it kind of all tracks. Yeah, no, maybe that's where uh, where the character of Alan Quartermain in this film, mm-hmm. it just, it really works because you've got so much of Sean Connery's attitude coming through. Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid so. I think that's as good an explanation as any. But this film, as I, I, I said in the last episode, it it really may be the, the movie that 
inspired the series of, well, it looked pretty. <laughs> because I think this film looks absolutely gorgeous. It is the reason why, like I was saying, if I'm flipping through, I'm going to stop and watch this film. Because I love every scene of this, the look of every scene of this film. I can sit there and watch the car from the film all day the long. automobile yeah. yes <laughs> yeah or anything with nemo i mean his beard god i want his beard <laughs> yeah, no kidding. that beard was amazing uh i would if i could pull off dressing like him and having that beard i'd do that all day long because there's no way that man doesn't walk into a room and everyone doesn't just stop and go I'm not messing with that dude. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for very different reasons that you might think, though. Very, very, very true, but <laughs> but still, and, and, and he was so good in the role too. Uh, I mean, it, it is one of those like that's what this movie is. I think for a lot of people, is with the amalgam of characters that you have to pull from. Even if you don't love it, you could probably find something in there that you like. Like, if you like pretty boys, you're all over Tom Sawyer or Dorian Gray. I mean, if that's your thing, they're there. If you like grizzled old uh, charming gentlemen, you have Sean Connery. If you need a, a hot, dangerous woman, you've got Mina Harker. You, you got, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> that's true. Prior to this, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a fun because I really enjoy this film and everything. But now I'm sitting down and I'm like, now I actually have to like justify my enjoyment of this film. <laughs> I'm having a hard time. This is the film that defines guilty pleasure kind of thing. I mean, it's not good. <laughs> the story's terrible. Most of it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it starts off really strong and then just gets weaker the further you get into it. That by the time you get to the end, you just want it to be over. I don't know if I even agree with that last That's statement fine. at all. No, I, I honestly, this is one of those movies where I want, you know, the further adventures of this League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I want the sequel. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I was perfectly content for him to never get out of the grave. And, you, you know, you could have done it because Sean Connery could have still retired and... You could have had Alan Quartermain being reborn as a younger man. Well, and suggesting that the uh, the League is something that has come together before with other members. Yeah, yeah. different different characters. You could could essentially take the concept and recreate it mm -hmm. uh, with others. It's just a matter of which mythical characters from from uh, literature will you pull this time around. Yeah. And I think that that's another thing that I really love about this film. And I guess really the credit needs to go to uh, back to the, the writers of the graphic novel is the idea of creating a universe where all these characters exist for real. Mm -hmm. You know, they all exist in the same world, in the same universe. That's, I mean, that seems like one of those ideas that seemed really obvious. And it's like, why did it take so long before anyone come up with it? <laughs> Well, you had to get around to making all the characters the first time around. <laughs> uh, true. And you had to maybe wait until you could actually get the rights and or they fell in the public domain. Like, for instance, they couldn't say The Invisible Man. Right. Because that's still copyrighted by Universal Pictures. So he's just an Invisible Man. Yeah. <laughs> Little nugget in there that I, uh, I'm sure you caught it, but uh, did you catch, uh, did you catch Nemo's uh, first mate's name? Oh yeah, call me Ishmael. <laughs> <laughs> when you take moments like that, that that re-elevates the whole thing. At least in that moment, you're like, okay, you know what you are. <laughs> yep. So in in this universe, there. There was a Captain Ahab who went off in, on his quest for the great white whale and all that, and maybe uh, all that happened, and Ishmael survived and needed a, a new employer. Well, yeah, after <laughs> all, he's the one that was telling the tale, so he made it yeah. out. He needed a new job. Uh, some of the, the steampunk quality almost moves over into 
almost would you, would you say it almost moves into a little bit into the diesel punk too when you get into like the phantoms army with the uh the the, the tank and the armored soldiers and stuff well it's interesting um watching this again and knowing that this came from 2003 when we get to like the marvel movies and we get to captain america the first avenger mm-hmm. there's a lot of a uh, parallel between the hydra army that the red skull was putting together and what was going on in this film oh yeah very much yeah so you get that you get that Iron Age, that that big, like right down to the giant tank that rolls through London. Uh, it just has that. Yeah, you're supposed to focus on this um, emerging Art Deco technological kind of thing that's blooming. It's where you get the the steampunk element from the Victorian and all and the turn of the century stuff. It, it all comes together and and. and this has impacted other films. I totally see it. And You're talking about the plot earlier. There are elements of this plot that you, I do agree make very little sense, but maybe they sort of hearken to the idea of, um, you know, the old serials and stuff like that of the 40s. Like, you know, it turns out that M is really Moriarty, and he goes around masquerading as the Phantom, you know, the scarred, masked villain what what's with the theatrics <laughs> right what I, I what's funny is that uh, this actually harkens back to a sherlock holmes story or at least one of the more current films the concept that uh, the character moriarty would attempt to get the world at odds with itself essentially for the purposes of him making money mm-hmm. um it's all a big grift and all that just so that he can sell weapons to all the world's armies and such. Uh, But yeah, it had that element right there at the beginning where it started to lay that groundwork. But then we started to focus so much on pulling the league together and going out to combat it, which falls apart because M is the one that pulls the lead together. <laughs> so why? Yeah, exactly. Which really throws into, like, why change the story to have him do that it, rather than having Mina Harker Sure, pull yeah, the team why together? not recognize that there is a... There is a power beyond um, normal men's ability to combat. Somebody is smart enough to know how to manipulate the globe to to bend to his will so that he can accomplish whatever. Why would that be the person that then sets up the team that could stop him? Um, And it'd be okay if you were going in a whole direction where, like, like Moriarty, the character would always do, he insisted on facing off against Sherlock because he needed somebody of similar intellect to defeat. Otherwise, it didn't mean anything. Right. But they didn't set up this Moriarty in the way that they told this story to make us feel like he needed the challenge, that he that's what he was looking for. And since none of these were his necessarily his intellectual equal all he did is really put together a band of ruffians that just had enough skills that they could impact him well other than getting them all together in order to steal all their secrets right or steal their but yeah he obviously (laughs) had their abilities he could have taken a little bit more time and still done that without assembling them and giving them a mission. You could have done them one on a time without having to worry about all that. You didn't have to set them on the mission to defeat you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the part that just, it, it, it falls apart immediately as soon as you know that M is also the bad guy. Again, like I, I asked, 
you know, why the theatrics with the mask mm-hmm. and the scarred face? Why go to that kind of trouble? The theatrical part of the character, I, I kind of got this vibe like he was trying to play it off like he was the Rasputin of the day, that he is this other element from another country that might be kicking it off. But again, it doesn't entirely make sense why he would bother. It's a red herring in, in this case. I think the theatrics... Oh, no, I, yeah, absolutely. That That is the actual true answer, is it's just a red herring. And I just, I, I'm always baffled when the villain decides to masquerade. You finally want to wear a mask, you want to hide your identity? That's one thing. But I'm going to do makeup so I look all scarred and... Why? <laughs> Well, and, and with the things that he was pulling off, he didn't necessarily have to be there himself. He's the mastermind. Yeah. Right. You, yeah, you could have actually given a little bit more, uh, a little bit more part to the uh, the guy that ends up. Well, I guess his, I guess it was his right hand man, the guy that ends up uh, drinking all the uh, hide potion. He's a character that was literally in the film, so he could drink all the hide potion. Right. And then have a, a you know the battle of the hide fight for a few minutes and then die, but he's like, who is he? <laughs> right. Yeah. No. Uh, you you in you show this person he makes a couple of appearances, but I mean he has no gravitas in the film. They're not supposed to mean much of anything. But again, usually the 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 bad guy does have at least one good henchman. That 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 guy that you lean lean on. He's responsible for everything. He. He, he's the boss you have to beat before you beat the boss. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they didn't really make him out to be that way. Dante was apparently the character's name. I don't even remember it being said in the film, but I'm guessing it was. Yeah, no, I'm reading the list of characters in here, and yeah, uh, other than I knew that that's the right guy with, <laughs> with for that moment, I had no idea his name was Dante. <laughs> Those are the elements. Like I said, this is a fun film. Um, the characters are, are interesting. It, 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 it's a good watch. But it just... You can't think about this one at all. If you put any thought into this whatsoever. And I think that's why you're having trouble even talking about it. You know you like it. But if you have to try to defend it, it all falls apart and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and I I think I think you're right. And this is certainly not the only film in my uh, uh collection that I will tell you I really enjoy but really can't tell you why. Right. I mean, you're a, you're you're a diehard fan for Monster at Gogo. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Our, our, Ghost of Drag Strip Hollow. <laughs> Or am I thinking Robot Monster? That's the one. That's the one. (laughs) That's where you're going for. That's the one I was going for. Same deal. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you can't really justify why you love that so much other than the fact that you do. And that's okay. That's okay. That's what that's about. That that is entertaining. There, There is an X factor in it that just makes it right. Like I said, you, I can watch this very easily. I can enjoy watching it. But I can't think about it too hard. Well, you want to see what some other people thought about it? Absolutely. All right, I did I posted over on Reddit there's a subreddit called Bad Movies. Mm-hmm. And it's a very active group and I knew I'd get some good responses from it. Uh the first one, Holt PJ, said that this movie is amazing. Sean Connery was so mad he passed on The Matrix and Lord of the Rings that he took this, LOL. His salary was like $30 million. He basically bankrupted the movie before they began filming. Oh, and Tom Sawyer was an FBI agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did like that little Tom Sawyer works for the U.S. government. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, actually, Sean Connery's salary was only was closer to like, to like $18 million, so... <laughs> Uh, Tipsy69 says, what now? Leave of Extraordinary Gentleman is amazing. <laughs> and there's actually several people that posted on it that I, I stopped actually recording who it was. There was a lot of people that went, no, this is not a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Alistair's 94. I love this movie. Uh, Baby Bird 87. I like the first 15 minutes. And uh, I guess Connery hated the director. So I, I did mention that yeah. earlier. Uh, Mrs. Cup Cupboard. OMG. Anyone who has this... Uh, uh, talking about like uh, the Blu-ray or DVD. Listen to the costume commentary. The head of the costume is audibly in love with Sean Connery. She says Sean like a Bond girl says James, specifically Tanya Roberts in View to a Kill. Yeah. She says she's obviously interested in costuming, and I'm not into kink shaming, but if you're going to orgasm when talking about linen shirts for Sean Connery, maybe pause the recording first. <laughs> <laughs> That really makes me want to listen to that. Absolutely. Movie Mike 007 says the aircraft carrier sized Nautilus going down the canals of Venice never stops being funny. <laughs> Agreed. The car 300 WTF. Who in their right mind considers this film as bad? And says, yeah, that opinion was shared by many commenters. Uh, Brimstone 747 love this movie visually beautiful and a great cast of characters on Twitter launching the pilot says it's one of those popcorn movies that I enjoyed plenty of nonsense action but if you don't stop to think about it it's great fun so pretty much what you just said Mm -hmm. over on discord Matt he says genuinely like this movie for what it is a fun adventure with a bunch of iconic characters What's not fun about Alan Quartermain teaching Tom Sawyer how to shoot or Mina Harker dueling with Dorian Gray? Some movies you question and some you sit back and eat popcorn. This is the latter. Yep. Yep. Nope. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And on Facebook, uh, Cameron says, wasn't e- wasn't ever into the comics, so this Indiana Jones slash X-Men mashup worked for me. Still will watch a good chunk of it anytime it's on TNT, FX, BBC, America. Imperfect, sure, but I dig the cast roles, set design, art design, practical stunts, and other fun rocketeer-type serial villains. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, a lot of uh, comments like that. Yeah, a lot of people in bad movies that really didn't like me posting it in a bad movie subreddit. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Yeah. Shall we hear from the professionals? Yeah, what did the critics have to say about this one? Uh, this is not as loving as... <laughs> as the fan base apparently um best one i got is out of the wall street journal uh colin levy um succeeds the same way the original comic book did by making the conflicts and dilemmas basic enough for a five-year-old while giving the heroes and villains glamorous outfits and layers of complexity to thicken the broth um, okay. But then it devolves pretty badly from there. I got to read one of these because it's hysterical because this guy must love to just write with big words. Daily News. I don't even know Daily News out of where. But Jack Matthews. Um, having these characters interact is both the joke and raison d'etre of League. <laughs> its story is beyond banal. Which <laughs> is <just> good. <laughs> really? <laughs> Um, The Washington Post, Stephen Hunter. It's not brazenly bad or heroically bad or stridently bad. It's bad in all the old, dull ways of being bad. Poor performances, absurd story, dreary special effects, witless dialogue, and the excessive length of someone taking himself far too seriously. So, um, apparently didn't care for it. And then the tried and true, uh, I always lean on him hard, Roger Ebert. Um, Just so you know, with some of the stuff that we've watched recently, when we delp into Roger, he's usually in the two-star range, maybe a little higher. This is the first one-star that I have seen from him in the stuff that we have watched. And he starts off with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen assembles a splendid team of heroes to battle a plan for world domination. And then, just when it seems about to become a real corker of an adventure movie, plunges into incomprehensible action, idiotic dialogue, inexplicable motivations, 
causes without effects, effects without causes, and general lunacy. What a mess. (laughs) 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 And, And then he ends... He goes through the, the normal kind of uh, synopsis of all of this, and then he ends on, I don't really mind the movie's lack of believability. Well, I mind a little. To assume audiences will believe cars racing through Venice is as insulting as giving them a gondola chase down the White House lawn. <laughs> What I do mind is that the movie plays like a big wind came along and blew away the script and they ran down the street after it and grabbed a few pages and shot those. (laughs) Since Oscar Wilde contributed Dorian Gray to the movie, it may be appropriate to end with his dying words. Either that wallpaper goes or I do. (laughs) He has a sense of humor about, about yeah, this. Yeah, no, that's great. But yeah, he, he was left wanting a little. Is that all you had? That That is all that I have, sir. I didn't think, what, that wasn't enough? No, that, that, that's plenty. Okay. <laughs> dude, dude, we need more SmackDown? Because even the good one wasn't great. I feel like one of those kids on an old cereal commercial. What was it, for Apple Jacks or something like that? And eating those Apple Jacks, I see. Hey, what's wrong with you kids? They don't taste like apples. That isn't why we like them. Then why? (laughs) I know, I know. You just do. Yeah. 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 Kellogg's Apple Jack cereal is part of this complete breakfast. Yeah, and uh, that's fitting. Uh, This is the Apple Jackson movies. It doesn't make any sense. It looks kind of weird at times, uh, but you kind of like it anyway. Yeah, so that'll do it for League of Extraordinary (laughs) Gentlemen, the movie that's really great in your own head. Uh, (laughs) Next episode, we're going to stay in 2003, and we're going to look at the another adventure film. This time, taking place in the then present day. The core. This is actually one of those, much like you say, you pause to watch if this just happens to be on for the league. The Mm -hmm. core is similar for me. Oh, interesting. Okay. I actually find I get drawn to this one every once in a while. All right. Well, this will be very interesting. Maybe we'll have a reversal on the show. Very well could. (laughs) I'll be fascinated to see if you're new... Your re-adventure into the core is is a memorable one. We'll be back with that in a couple weeks. Uh, Until then, please uh, follow the link in the show notes to all our social media sites, uh, uh, websites, uh, email addresses. uh, Learn how you can help the the show financially. That's all there. And uh, we appreciate you listening. We look forward to any uh, feedback or uh, comments that you might have on this or any episode. And until we talk to you in a couple weeks, we'll say goodbye. See ya.